Father, thank you for the opportunity to grow in your word. Pray that this morning your Holy Spirit would come and take out our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. Soft hearts that receive your word and that love it. Would you wake us up and help us to live zealously for you. Lord, we love you. Amen. Is that loud? Is that okay? Um, okay, it's probably the former teacher in me, but I love um, charts, and I particularly have an affinity for the charts that you see on the History Channel when they're telling a story, and it's a map, and the map starts to change colors based on what's happening. Do you know what I'm talking about? And um, the the most fascinating one I've ever watched is seven minutes long. Um, I almost I forgot, but I was going to bring the YouTube address for you to look it up because it's really amazing. It's of World War II. It's the map of Europe in World War II. And it's, um, it's colored by blue, the Allied forces, and red, the Axis evil forces. And so what happens is you start to see, starting in 1939, red kind of springing up from Germany, spreading spreading it's getting worse it's getting worse it's getting worse to the point that it is now 1944 and the whole map i mean all of europe except for england all of russia africa is red i mean it just starts to become red and this time lapse map starts you know you see these dots growing and growing and the colors growing and then this crazy thing happens um, when it, the, the, the little date counter goes to June of 1944. And what you see are these tiny little dots of blue on the coast of Normandy. And that was D-Day. And that was when the Allied forces sort of, sort of surprised the Germans. They were expecting the Allied forces to try to invade Europe through the quickest point between England and France, but they didn't. They went a little bit farther down to Normandy where the German troops were really ready and waiting for them. They had command. And these troops land on the coast of Normandy. And at that point, you see little flickers of blue on the, on the northern part of, of, of um, France. And your heart kind of does this because you know what's going to happen. And the blue starts to just kind of inch through France just a little bit. And before you know it, within a year, the whole map is blue again, just like that. And it's, it's exciting. And so why am I talking about my little map morphing? It has to do with what we're talking about because um, what we're seeing here in chapter 5 and really in John, as Jesus is arriving, it is D-Day. It is, um, he has come. He is starting the beginning of the end for evil, for the curse that, that we have gotten in, um, in Genesis. And so this era is like this supernatural D-Day for us. And Lisa alluded to it last week. It was the beginning of the messianic age. It's begun. It's here. It's been promised. And so in that sense, it's always been. But here, here he's landed on the beach. And so... Um, he has announced his kingdom, and here in John 5, we see him do another of his miraculous signs, which we know mean something. They're not just a cool miracle. And the thing that I think that it means from what I've read is that um, Christ is here to reverse the curse. 
And so in Bethesda, we see, okay, another little chart. Turn to the back of your handout. You will see that Bethesda was a very real place. I gave you some pictures. You can see where it is in relation to the temple. It was just north of the temple, the north wall of the temple. And it was excavated in 1956. I like seeing that. Just to remember, this isn't a fable or something or make-believe. This was a real location, and this really happened in a place. And and we've uh, excavated it and found it. So the thing about Bethesda was that it was just pregnant with potential, this bubbly spring, this hope. But it was constantly birthing disappointment. It, it, it wasn't delivering the way that one would hope. And we see this man who for 38 years has just struggled. He's had this long-standing need, and he's powerless to help himself. And <clears throat> he has to rely on others for everything he needs to do. And you get the sense, I bet y'all talked about this in your group, that he seems pretty spiritually kind of nondescript, almost blind to in this situation. Um, he has really no concept that God could heal him in a way that doesn't involve bubbly water. And so um, he has no idea that Jesus, God, is standing before him this very minute. So Jesus goes into this place, and it's teeming with invalids, and he has one singular purpose, and it's to heal this guy of all the guys and gals, maybe, it's him. This is the one. And um, when Jesus approaches this man, he doesn't give him Joel Osteen quotes. He doesn't say, send your life to a whole new level. Zip up the negative words and start speaking faith and victory into your future. And maybe things will go better for you. And he doesn't say this from Joel. God has already done everything he's going to do. The ball is now in your court. If you want success, if you want wisdom, if you want to be prosperous and healthy, you're going to have to do more than meditate and believe. You must boldly declare words of faith and victory over yourself and your family. He doesn't say that. What he says to this man is kind of weird. Do you want to be healed? That's kind of like, duh. Right? I mean, and so I don't think we even really need to read too much into this question other than it's a simple diagnosis of where this guy is and what this guy needs. And he needs this guy to say what he needs, or he wants this guy to say what he needs. And so clearly we see in this whole process that it's the mercy of Jesus, not this man's good faith or good deeds or um, positive attitude. Um, or zipping up bad negative thoughts, that's not what heals this man. It's just the mercy of God. So um, Jesus doesn't need that bubbly water or a magic chant or anything like that. He doesn't need a moment of silence. He literally says the words and cells start shaking in this man's body. The ligaments and the tendons start to be formed again. Muscles begin to appear where there had to have been none. Um, Neurons begin to send messages that would otherwise take months to train in physical therapy, and he's walking just like that, all because of the very word of Jesus. And um, he's healed. 
And before he can even turn around and thank him, Jesus is gone. He's just kind of disappeared. And you can see how that would have happened because it would have been really chaotic and exciting. And, um, and so Jesus kind of slips out. But look at your maps again. Do you see how the temple... And the temple was, what, three football fields long? So it was a really big complex. That pool of Bethesda is outside of the temple. This man goes praising God, or we don't really know that. I shouldn't say that. He goes into the temple, and he's showing what he can do, and he's carrying that mat, and it's the Sabbath. And he goes into the temple. Do you see that the temple is not very close? I mean, it's walking distance, but this isn't. This was Jesus seeking out this man in the temple. It was almost a miracle that he could find this guy, although there probably would have been lots of excitement crowding around this guy. And when Jesus goes to this guy, he doesn't go to say, oh, I just to give you a happy for you. You have got to go try the hike up Mount Sinai. It's incredible. You'll love it. Just wanted to just come back and say, happy for you. You just enjoy those legs. I know it's been a long time. He has a total different reason for going to him. He has a singular purpose again, and he wants to tell the man why he's healed him. And um, this isn't particular to this man. Hopefully, I'll discuss that in your groups too, that the, it wasn't the man needed healing because of his sin. And so when Jesus said, go and sin no more, that he was saying, that was the whole reason that you had that illness is that you were pretty bad. So just be better. That's not the message that Jesus is saying when he's saying go and sin no more. Y'all probably talked about that too in your groups. He's basically telling this man paralysis was terrible, but let me tell you something that's worse. Let me tell you something that's worse is spiritual death. Go and sin no more. And so to put it conversely, he's saying, Physical, physical vitality is great, but your spiritual vitality is way more important. That's why I healed you. Go and sin no more. Spiritual rising up, true resurrection, that's what brings us freedom and um, not just mobility, but in the final judgment, that freedom. So in light of this, the worst sin that this man could commit would be to literally make no spiritual change whatsoever. That would be the very worst thing, having been healed by Jesus at this time. So what we see is Jesus literally reversing the curse that had been placed in Genesis. He's reversing the catastrophe of wine at the wedding, no wine at the wedding. He's reversed the effects of sickness and death. We saw that in chapter 4. Um, he will reverse the hunger of the crowds and the lack of abundance that we see. He will literally raise up Lazarus from the dead. And these are all signs, not just miracles as we traditionally Reader's Digest think of a miracle. These are signs that um, Jesus is reversing something. He's, he's undoing something. So um, I think it's important to point out that God promises that he will reverse the curse in a real physical way for the earth we live in. And I just think this is really fun um, to think about. In Romans 8, 19, it, um, it reads, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And 21 says, Creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Isn't that weird? 
when you go to the Grand Canyon or when you go to the Colorado, that that is creation in bondage? Can you imagine what creation will be like as the curse is finally reversed? Okay, so Jesus has landed on the perilous beaches of um, our souls, and he started the fight. He comes, and he also says, I am here, I am fighting, but I've already won. So in um, what, what's that whole paradigm of the already, but the not yet. The already, but the not yet. And y'all might, might have talked about that in your group too, groups too. Um, he comes and says, I've already won. Truly, truly, I say to you, he says in 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment. And this is what's interesting, but has passed from death to eternal life. You have passed from death to eternal life, even as you live. Um, So it's like he's saying, I'm pushing back the curse. That map will keep morphing. But in a way, boom, it's all turned blue because I'm here. So it's this weird trickling of turning blue and turning blue all at the same time because there's that already, what he's already done and what he's not yet done but will do, has promised to do. So for you and me, that's just our reality and it really becomes our identity to think that we have passed from death to life, um, that we've been crucified with Christ. It's like... um, Okay, is this true that if you have Ebola, you're immune to it if you survive it? I think it is. It would be like going, let's pretend it is. It would be like you having had Ebola, just being like, bring it on. You are sick. Let me help you. I do not need an uh, astronaut mask. Um, That's the reality we live in. We have been crucified with Christ. We have been raised. We have already passed from death to life. We, that is such freedom for us. Um, I know that's easier said than done. Um, because, But ponder what that would mean, that he's pushing back the curse in your life, in my life, every day. He's pushing back the curse in our community, in our families, in our schools, in our life as the church. Um, pushing back the curse, extending his kingdom, um, is something that he is doing and he is ably doing right now. Um, so, I mean, you know, y'all, in October of 2015, right now, we can just fear that the world is getting worse and that darkness is just overtaking and our country's going down the tubes and things are just getting so bad. Or we can trust in a powerful Jesus who's on the move and working. And that's a paradigm shift. And that affects everything. That affects our outlook on our problems, on sin and evil, that Jesus is on the move and victorious. Okay, there's a quote that says that um, a picture's worth a thousand words, but context is worth a million. So we're hearing this story of Jesus doing this healing, and it's sweet and good, and you're happy for the man. And then it says, and this was on the Sabbath, and you're like, this is going to (laughs) be... Here we go again, the Sabbath and Jesus. Why? Why? It was so good. But this is, of course, intentional. This is so intentional by Jesus. He wants to show us in this action on this day that it is totally his prerogative to do that. Um, So 
I've had a lot of fun learning more about what Jesus and the Sabbath have to do with each other. And I have another chart. And um, I'm going to do it on the board. And I am going to encourage you to copy it because I, I think it will help, hopefully, in understanding this a little bit better as we go. I'm going to kind of be adding to it as we go. But the heart of the Sabbath from the beginning, Darwin was really helpful with this for me, too, was resting in God's salvation. How do I come to that conclusion? Because in Deuteronomy um, 5.15, God says, Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It is a day that you, I'm totally paraphrasing, that you will recall that you were brought out of Egypt and recall that your salvation. So the, the point of the Sabbath isn't to sit around twiddling your thumbs, but there is a mental engagement that needs to happen on the Sabbath, and it is resting in God's salvation. So um, let's see, where am I? Um, Darwin said this, Israel's laws expressed primary truths. Israel's laws about the Sabbath. If we do not rest in God's salvation and mercy, then we'll suffer judgment. And that's what we had seen, right? So if they honored the Sabbath, things went well for them. Oops, I'm going to put honoring. So honoring the Sabbath would mean that things would go well for them, that they would have life. And dishonoring the Sabbath, or we'll say breaking the Sabbath, lifting some sticks on the Sabbath, carrying a mat on the Sabbath, well, too bad for you, death. That was the intention of God's Sabbath commandment. And what he did when he gave that commandment was he made it to be like a covenant. It would be a time for remembering, promise, And you'll recall that when they break that covenant and they break the Sabbath and they don't honor the covenant, they're taken into captivity in Babylon. So to the Jews, the Sabbath is super important because it's a physical way that they realized their set-apartness, their difference, and God gave them some real strict commands regarding the Sabbath. And we know they added on a lot more, too, that weren't originally there. But the heart of the Sabbath was good, is my point. And the heart of the Sabbath was that um, we were to remember to rest in God's salvation. Okay. Where am I? So, here. Um, So, when Jesus deliberately heals on the Sabbath, this wasn't the only time he did this, we know. You get a big picture that he's intentionally rocking their boats, and it totally works. He gets a big, oh, no, you didn't, from the Jewish people because their outward conformity had totally replaced their heart commitment. And when I typed that at my house, I was like, oh, piercing a little bit of repentance needed here because their outward conformity had replaced their heart commitment. I felt like that applied to me. I think that that can apply to really probably any of us on any daily basis. Um, Because I think that, as y'all know, that it can be a big trap for us to rest 
not in our salvation, but in our daily doing. And that that makes us right before the Lord and good with the Lord. Um, and I just think that Psalm 51 is such a good reminder in that, that God doesn't want our sacrifices as much the sacrifice that he wants is our broken and contrite heart. And that was what was missing from these Jews that confront Jesus. Okay, so the Jews don't care that this man's life is totally back. They don't care that he has vitality and hope. That what matters here is all of a sudden that it happened on the Sabbath, and they are mad. The rule has been violated. God has given a Sabbath to his people to give them rest on their salvation. And yet here someone is saved, and um, they despise the act of mercy. They despise the God of mercy who performs it. So this Sabbath, this beautiful masterpiece, and that really you see this is actually the perfect day for this man to be healed. And the Jews miss it. It reminds me of my friend Molly who went in college at TCU. She and her friends would always drive by the Vickery um, train yard and see those trains that said Santa Fe on them. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? And she and her friend said, why haven't more people thought of this? We're totally getting on one of those trains and getting a free ride to Santa Fe. And so sure enough, they got on one night onto an open car. These little TCU sorority girls hopped on with a little pocket full of cash and their dad's debit card and gas card for when they drove home. And they thought, this is going to be awesome. And they might have had a little to drink. And that night, they were lulled to sleep by the train tracks. And when they woke up in the morning, guess where they were? Back at the Vickery Yards. <laughs> One big circle. <clears throat> so what happened is Jesus, as he confronts these Jewish rulers, is he saying implicitly, the Sabbath is not going to take you where you think it will. It's not it. It is not the thing of substance. The Sabbath has no power. I am the whole substance to which the Sabbath rests and sanctions are pointing. I am the salvation. Rest in me. So what Jesus is saying here is this. I equal Sabbath. I equal the salvation. Rest in this salvation that I bring. And so this, as you can understand, is a big shift in, for them in their thinking. And they kind of can't get behind it. Um, we learn later in scripture, I think this is important, and you might want to write this down, that um, the Sabbath pointed to the final rest we would have in Christ, that we enjoy now and will enjoy most fully in the last day. But um, Hebrews 4 is a really good reference text. If you've kind of, if this pricks your interest about the Sabbath, about what it means to be in the new covenant and thinking of the Sabbath. And then also Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. I'll read that. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So Jesus isn't really trying to say here to get the Jews to really understand the Sabbath. He's really trying to get them to understand who he is. 
Refusing to rest in God's salvation, breaking the Sabbath, isn't about carrying a mat on the wrong day anymore. Refusing the Sabbath, violating the Sabbath, now means refusing the gospel of Jesus, period. So it's a huge, huge game change. And um, so the Jews have the hardest time seeing this, and um, their inability to see this is what Jesus calls a refusal. And so, where's my little handy chart on the Sabbath? It's in here somewhere. Give me a minute. Bear with me. Here it is. So we might even add to our chart here just to further understand that breaking it is the same. Oh, sorry. Microphone. Is the same as refusing it. Um, and that life here, we will talk about this in a minute, would be what Jesus refers to as um, good and death would be, oops, evil. I'll get to that more in a minute but while I'm not there. Okay, so he says in 40, verse 40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may live. So this is a refusal, he says. Oh my gosh, I better go. Okay, so Jesus takes the focus off of the Sabbath and he turns it into a lesson about himself. And he says that, he takes it a step further in 17, my father is working into now and I am working. Basically, that could be paraphrased. Ever since y'all messed up in the Garden of Eden, we have been working. We took a rest, but we have not stopped working. And I am working, and my father is working. So guess what that also means? This is going to make you so mad. It's going to make you so mad that this is the very moment you decide you want to kill me. But I'm going to tell you this. A equals B equals C. Father equals Jesus equals Sabbath. I am it. I is my prerogative to do what I'm doing. I can heal whatever day I darn well, darn well please. Okay, so this makes them mad. And then, um, let's see, I'm going to move on. So he tells them it's his prerogative to push back the curse for three reasons. He can give life to whoever, whoever he wants, he says in verse 21. And in verse 22, he says he judges. In verse 23, that he's worthy of honor. And in 25 to 29, he talks what kind of sounds like zombie talk. All of a sudden, he's talking about resurrection, man being raised up to walk. That's nothing. Let me tell you what I'm going to do, he says. I'm going to raise up the dead. And that is either going to be to resurrection of life or resurrection of judgment. Not by a magic spell, not by a biological wonder, but by my word. And um, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, you can write that down, confirms it. And um, so in verse 28, Jesus says, An hour is coming when all in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Piper says the coolest thing about this. He says, let that sink in. Let it sink in mainly so you can see who Jesus is. Everybody who has ever died obeys in their decomposed bodies the voice of Jesus, and they rise from the dead bodily. Millions of Chinese will rise. Helpless and dead now, mere dust, mere molecules, 
Hitler will one day obey the name of Jesus and rise and be resurrected. Georgia O'Keeffe will hear the name of Jesus and rise. Laura Ingalls Wilder, Saddam Hussein, Elizabeth Taylor will hear the name of Jesus and rise. Julia Child will hear the name of Jesus and rise. Walt Disney will hear the name of Jesus and rise. Every person will hear the name of Jesus and rise to judgment or to life. All will be raised by the dead. And this is what Jesus boldly tells these these Jews. This is power. This is authority that belongs to Jesus. This is glory. It's no small thing. It is this living, this is the living God that we worship. This is the Jesus we worship. This Jesus by his word can create life where there is not. By his absolute power, he can do what seems impossible, breathing life into dead marriages, doubting hearts, broken friendships. Wounded family dynamics, unregenerate children, that is the Jesus we believe in. Our Jesus is going to push back the curse, and his name will be honored. Women of God, that is hope in Christ. This isn't a felt more Jesus. This is a real life, powerful Jesus. So this raising up business on this Sabbath... It's nothing compared to the rising up that's promised to come. And he makes no secret about that. So we can join him in raising up, not raising up the dead. No, no, no. (laughs) I don't want to do that. (laughs) In reversing the curse. We get to do that. In pushing back the darkness. That is his call on our lives. And we are privileged to get to do this. And so rather than taking the D-Day and the war analogy too far, I want to be careful here and think of, of us more as doctors than these like soldiers who, who care about people. We don't need to like lob a Facebook posting grenade about political things or religious. We can do that, fine, but that is not what it means in its entirety to be a follower of Jesus and call it a day. We can't hole up in our bunkers and just hide away from the world. We are not fighting a culture war. That has already been lost. Our concern isn't about morality and rules and going back to the way that our founding fathers meant for our country to be. It is not. When we focus on tradition and not the person of Christ, we're just the Pharisees. We are. We can care about those things, but that is not it. That's not the point. Reversing the curse with Jesus involves approaching individuals in their need and loving them and serving them and encouraging them with the truth of the gospel. We think of those doctors who volunteered to go to Ebola even though they weren't immune and they, to the Ebola-ridden countries, and they did it. We think about those, those people wanting to push back disease. Well, we are like that in our communities. We love others. We reverse the curse in our communities. And that can look like different things for all of us. But we're engaged, and um, we're supporting our teachers. We're encouraging them. We're looking at people who are really annoying and that we don't like, and we're drawing in, not waiting for some merit or something worthy in them to give us their, give them our attention. We're not using people as things to boost ourselves up, but we're using 
Christ to boost others up. Okay, so um, Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That's pushing back the curse. That's extending the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 9.22 and 23 I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. That's pushing back the curse. That's extending the kingdom. Every single person in John who was healed, or I should say every single person in the New Testament who was healed by Jesus or came back to life eventually died again. So these signs that Jesus did were a temporary sign, but they represented this long-lasting thing that he was going to do when he would come once and for all and kill sin and death and evil. So this one whom we worship, the one that we say we devote our lives to, he is the Lamb of God, but one day he's going to be the ferocious lion. And he's also described in Revelation 19 as a, um, as a soldier, and he's a soldier that, um, who will judge, and he will be called faithful and true. And as heaven opens, he will ride in on a white horse. And this is what Revelations 19 says. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, of God the Almighty, in his robe and on his thigh. He has written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This Jesus in Revelations 19 is the same Jesus that comes and talks to these Jewish people in John 5. And he is the same Jesus that you and I worship. He is the Jesus who gives us Sabbath rest, our salvation. He's the Jesus who makes D-Day turn into V-Day, that victory in Europe day that happened at the very end of the war when all of the map turned blue in Europe. Well, we're going to have victory day in Europe, Asia, America, everywhere. Because of Jesus, because he will come and he will reverse the curse. This has such awesome implications for us as believers. And I hope that some of those things can encourage you as you go home and think about them this week. Let's pray. Jesus, you are mighty to save and you are worthy. You are the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world so that we could enter into Sabbath rest with you. It's a high calling you've given us to walk with you, to reverse the curse with you. Thank you for the privilege. Thank you that it is worthy of our time. Thank you that it is worthy of our sacrifices. Thank you for seeking and saving us even when we were weak and still sinners. We pray that we would be satisfied in you and that we would um, be amazed by you and worship you. We pray in your name. And Lord, please bless the food. Amen.